growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. Welcome to another episode of the How We Solve show. And today we have a very special guest that I'm personally really excited about because one of his books really impacted the way I'm doing business today. Thank you very much, John, for writing Build to Sell. It was like a real eye-opener for me. And I would not have a portfolio of businesses that are running without me actively in the business. So thank you very much. That's awesome. I'm thrilled to hear it work. It works phenomenal. John is a five-time entrepreneur and the author of a best-selling trilogy of books on building, accelerating, and harvesting a business's value. John serves as the CEO and the founder of the Value Builder System, a practice management software for business advisors. And John's also the author of Build to Sell, as just mentioned, creating a business that can thrive without you. It really works. He was also recognized by Fortune Magazine and Inc. Magazine as one of the best business books of the year. His second bestseller is The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry, it was translated into more of a dozen languages. And John also hosts the Build to Sell Radio, which Forbes ranked as one of the 10 best podcasts for business owners. Forbes really likes the stuff we're putting out there. <laughs> <laughs> His latest book is The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top, which was released in January 2021, which I haven't had the pleasure of reading it. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, David. It's good to be with your group. Today, we will talk about how to lower churn for your SaaS business. A bunch of takeaways from your book on how to create a subscription business, but also from your experience. But before we dive into this, anything else you want to fill in or set the stage for? No, I think that's a meaty topic and it's germane to everybody, whether you're a SaaS business or e-commerce business that's looking to get into SaaS or even a subscription-based service that you want to have a recurring revenue model. It's really important to think about churn, obviously. So I think it's a great topic. Let's dig in. All right. So what's the first thing you should analyze if you want to reduce or eliminate? Can't really eliminate churn because that's always going to be something, but how do you, what are the steps? The first step is probably quantifying your churn. And of course, there's going to be avoidable churn and unavoidable churn. And I think this comes back to who the target customer is for your productized service, your SaaS offering. Unavoidable churn is when people retire, companies merge, fortunately people in fact die. If you're targeting the SMB segment, small business owners, there's a layer of that market that moves around a lot. Again, people retire, they get sick, they merge, et cetera. And so that's unavoidable churn. You can walk on water and you'd still have churn. And the avoidable churn is the stuff you're really worried about, right? So trying to quantify your churn and bucket it both avoidable and unavoidable so that you can really focus in on what's driving your avoidable churn. I think that's probably step number one. Okay. And how do you usually go about it? Just kind of create a spreadsheet with all your signups and all your like a cohort analysis, or you just use Stripe for that? Like what's the easiest way where you have like some templates that you can share with the audience? There's lots of software that'll do it for you. I think there's a qualitative overlay that allows you to distinguish between avoidable and unavoidable churn. So at Value Builder, we use spreadsheets because we want to go beyond just what some recurring billing platform can spit out. They're just going to give you the, the kind of dumb information, which is like gross churn, net churn, et cetera. But I, I want to go deeper than that and understand sort of the root cause for churn, understand if it's avoidable or unavoidable, and, and unpack it 
we do a weekly call where a big chunk of that call is looking at any account that has churned and trying to understand why, what was the onboarding experience like, what was their usage pattern, what can we learn from this effectively? So that's, I think, a big one. So yeah, depending on what billing platform you're using, whether it's Chargeify or Zuora or one of the many billing platforms out there, they will give you, obviously, gross churn, but I think you want to go on underneath that. We haven't also defined, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners would be really well aware of this, but for folks who aren't aware, there is the concept of net churn and gross churn. We should probably define those. So obviously, gross churn, you take how much recurring revenue you have coming into a month, and you look at how much revenue you lose in that month, and that expressed as a percentage is your gross churn. That's a revenue churn. You can also look at logo churn, which is effectively how many accounts you lose in that time frame. The more products you sell into the same logo, it allows you to lower your logo churn. But really, I think revenue churn is where most investors and most acquirers are focused in on. And they're looking at both the gross number as a percentage, how much revenue you lose based on the percentage of how much you had coming into the month. But they also look at net churn. So basically, net churn is the difference between your gross churn and your upgrade and expansion revenue. So whatever you upsell your existing customers to. And the holy grail, of course, is when you, your net churn is actually negative. Positive churn, yeah. Yeah, positive churn, which sounds like an oxymoron, but it actually means you're picking up more expansion revenue than you're losing in gross churn. Rob Walling, who does startups for the rest of us at Tiny Seed and lots of stuff in this space, talks about when they got to negative net churn for Drip, the company he sold to lead pages, that really had a big impact on their growth trajectory. And it, obviously, when you're not losing customers, the leaky bucket has been filled and every new customer then contributes to your total MRR each month. So that's a very nice northern light to try to strive for. It's not always possible, but it is something to try to strive for if it's entirely possible. I'm a huge NPS nerd. That promoter score, Eric Reichelt, who I actually have on the podcast in a few weeks. Frederick Reichelt, I think. Yes, we implemented NPS in the business. And I was always like, man, you know, my business partner brought this in. And then I saw him speak at the conference and it completely blew my mind. And then I read this book and I was like completely obsessed with it. Did you go back to your partner and say, I'm sorry, mea culpa, I was wrong? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it was in his presentation, but it was basically this funnel of like, First, there's awareness. Then at some point, you know, people you're in the consideration phase. And at some point, the customer signs on a dotted line and just like fun goes in and it goes out again. Most companies give them like some support, but a lot of, especially sales guys, just stop caring once they sign on a dotted line. But if you manage to make them stay so they don't churn, this is like the first step, which is amazing. But if you push it even further and turn them into advocates, you build this machine that will crush any competition because you can acquire customers at a higher price they stay with you and they give you new customers. So do you factor this in as well in terms of like how many referrals your customers bring you and like how much revenue this is generating? At ValueBuilder, we do not include, we look at net promoter score, but we don't necessarily include it in the churn number. We do look at LTV to CAC. So LTV to CAC is derived from your churn. And effectively, LTV stands for lifetime value of a customer and CAC, customer acquisition costs. And LTV, of course, is a function of how much revenue net contribution effectively you get per customer. And that is largely determined by the churn rate of those customers. So the higher your churn rate, the lower your LTV generally. And so that has a big impact. And net promoter score is obviously a, is a big predictor of churn. The beauty of net promoter score and what Reichel talks a lot about 
is that it's a predicted by a future forward-looking indicator. It takes into consideration or it measures the likelihood that you're either going to refer somebody or repurchase from that business. And those are future-looking indicators, which is why it's a great predictor of the future. So you could look at your net promoter score among your longest standing customers, and it's likely to be much higher than among your recent return customers, as an example. It's kind of a stupid, silly, simplistic example, but that's the essence of it. But we don't look at necessarily as a discrete or bundled into the return number. We look at them as discrete numbers. I thought, and it's probably hard to track if you don't have like an affiliate system for each customer, but like maybe if you work with large enterprise customers, you may be able to see it. If you track the new customers that are coming in that have been referred by existing customers and then kind of factor this in. Yeah, no, I think it's a cool thing. One of the other nice things about NPS is you can look at cohorts, right? So you can look at, for example, customers you won through a referral and look at that as a cohort and compare their net promoter score apples to apples with those who you won through direct or organic search or whatever other acquisition mechanisms you've used. And that's one of the beauties of it. You can go so far as to say, look at geographic locations, different salespeople, different account managers, and the relative churn rate of each of them. Which part of the product they're using, et cetera. So you can kind of like, okay, just like focus more on those. Yeah. People who use this product or this feature are three times higher NPS score than those who use these features. So yeah, it can really inform everything you do in your company. One question that popped up in my head when you said like every week you go through the churn numbers, accounts that have churned with your team. Who do you have this conversation with? With the sales team, with the product team, with the support team, with the leadership team? In our case, it's the leadership team that I'm involved in. And so it would cross the entire thing. We use like a BDR, like an outbound sales system. So we look at how were they prospected? Why were they chosen as a candidate? We look at the sales team, like who made the sale? Is it a sales rep who's notorious for making outlandish claims? So we look at the salesperson, then we look at who onboarded them. So who is the customer success manager? What was that onboarding experience like? Did they reach the mile markers along the way that we expect them to in terms of usage? That's probably an area we should dig into a little bit if the goal is to understand net churn or lowering churn. It would be helpful to talk about the onboarding experience. Yes, absolutely. I was about to say it because this is like a really big thing that we optimized to reduce churn, but just I can't really have a, a solid onboarding. And especially when the, with UpCoach, the product I'm focusing on a lot right now is we're in the building phase and the product is really good, but it's still a little complex when you first get introduced to it. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's complicated and they just bounce. You know? So kind of having like a hand-holding onboarding experience, it's what we do right now. And later on, we're going to like automate it more so it's more efficient. But right now, like everybody's forced to do an onboarding call with one of our CS guys. Fantastic. Yeah. If you look at the single most important thing you can do to lower your churn, it is to improve your onboarding experience. When people think about onboarding, oftentimes I think they think it equates to customer success or it's somehow just customer satisfaction and they'll figure it out along the way. What you've got to do, I think, in the first 30 days is you've got a unique opportunity to really impact the way your customer thinks and even the way they behave. And once that period is over and they've fed it in and decided how and if your product solves a specific need for them, it's really difficult to change their behavior downstream. And so if, for example, you, you mentioned earlier, if there are five or six features that your product offers, which drives your net promoter score through the roof, then you really should be onboarding against those five or six features so that you know that your best customers are going to use those features. 
Let me give you an example outside of the technology space, because I think for a lot of CEOs, this tends to be a little counterintuitive. I'm going to use an example, again, from a bricks and mortar industry. And I, I get the fact that most of your audience is e-commerce, is SaaS, productized service. But let me give you an example outside. So I gave a speech once at a car wash association event. So these are, these are guys and gals who own car washes. And the prevailing wisdom is that with a car wash, you sell a tank of gas and you sell a car wash, right? And the major driving force of your car wash business is your location. Like what streets are you on? How prevalent your location is? And I was saying, you know, you guys should move to subscription for car washes because man, like once you've got a subscription place, you got predictable revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And the hands go up in the audience. And I'm like, taking my questions. I'm like, we could never do one of these all you can eat subscription models. These get your car washed as many times as you want because we have costs for our car wash. Like we put someone through the car wash, it's like a dollar in hot water and soap. So we could never do it. And I'm like, well, tell me more about that. And he's like, yeah, like if we had people sign up for the car wash, just unlimited car wash subscription, we'd have people coming in every day. And I'm like, that's exactly what you should be promoting. You should be promoting the day they sign up for their unlimited car wash to come in every day that month, because that's what's going to bet in their behavior. That's what is going to drive their satisfaction with their subscription. And he's like, yeah, but that's going to cost us $30, a dollar for each time they come in. I'm like, yeah, in month one. But frankly, people have better things to do than wash their car 30 times a month, right? But what will be forever ingrained is in their mind is the value they derive from your car wash, which is going to drive their retention to that subscription for many years into the future. So their behavior will tail off in six, eight, nine months from now. They're not going to be coming in more than once or twice a month, but you're still going to be dinging their credit card for $39.95 a month. And they're not going to be likely to churn because in their mind, they got all this value from this subscription. And so what I think we need to do is over-index in the first 30 days, spend way more than we would on a given month on customer success, just to get them onboarding effectively. And then that can taper off over time. But you really want to over-index on that first 30 days, because once they pass that window, you can do virtually anything. And their thought about the problem your product solves for them is really locked in. It's very hard to get them off that idea. Yeah, absolutely. And Angie actually just asked, like, do your products have one-to-one onboarding or mostly automated? I think it's really crucial, especially in, in the UpCoach example. You know, if somebody comes in and they think it's too complicated and they don't have somebody who walks them through, they'll just tell everybody the stuff is too complicated, even though it's not. And even though it costs way more to have this customer success person talk to them, then we're going to make from them for a month or two. You know, since a SaaS subscription is not like some product class service where it costs more, it's just so well worth it to create these huge advocates and just also make them stick. One interesting thing that popped up in my mind was when you talked about certain metrics that you kind of want to measure. So for us, it's, it's with coach you can create programs in there. And if you don't create a program within the first day or so, we know that, you know, kind of like had this experience like, oh, like, what do I do here? You know, like even for the tie and then they may not come back. So if this is the case, then we kind of really hammer them hard with like follow-ups. So like, hey, let's jump the call. Let, let us show you like, where are you stuck? What do you see in terms of these key metrics or like milestones? Yeah, I think they're going to be very different based on each product, right? So 
every product has a couple of features which the founder knows is very sticky. Those are sticky features that are likely to be used again and again. And so you want to ensure that those stickiest features, the things that people need on a regular cadence, are going to be used. So I would have milestone markers to know how they lock in those features. The other thing to know is how much tailoring or customization they have done to the product or service. So for example, Value Builder, it's practice management software for business advisors. And so when a business advisor signs up to use our platform, they get white-labeled articles that they can send out on their behalf. And part of the value proposition is to make those articles appear like they are being sent from that firm. And so they've got to upload their logo to do that. And so one of our silly little milestones is have they uploaded their logo? Have they changed their color scheme? Have they had edited their font? And you may say, why, why are all those things important? Well, it just shows that they're betting in, right? And that they're becoming users of the product. So any customizations that a customer can do to your software, I think that's a really key milestone to be tracking. Usage of key features is another milestone to make sure you're tracking. And, and I think that which features to focus in on is going to depend based on what the product is. How do you educate people on that, you have like some onboarding software, like the super annoying Microsoft Words paperclip, or you just like do videos up front on the sign up page, or you have an email drip, or like what's the best practice for supporting the onboarding in an automated fashion? Yeah, I'm a big believer in analog to digital onboarding. So I love what you're doing with UpCoach. You're starting off in a very kludgy, unscalable way. So have the product manager or the CEO literally do the onboarding. So here, let me show you how this feature works. Let me show you how the product works and figure out what questions customers are asking of you. So it's hugely kludgy, very time-consuming, totally unscalable, but irreplaceable in terms of insight, right? And so that's what gives you the data to show you what sequences are going to be important, what cadences are going to be important, what questions you need to address during your onboarding. I'm reminded, have you ever seen Constant Contact and the way they onboard people? No, I've never, never signed up. It's interesting. It's on my mind lately because you, you saw the Intuit acquisition of MailChimp at like 14 billion bootstrapped. It's an incredible story. One of MailChimp's competitors is a company called Constant Contact. And in the early days, they had a who, what, when approach to onboarding new customers. Meaning, when you signed up for Constant Contact, it would say, welcome, congratulations to being a Constant Contact customer. The first step in sending an email to your customers is to upload your CSV file, upload your customer database. And you can imagine what non-technical founders, flower shop owners, auto mechanics thought of, what is a CSV file? How do I match columns? What are you going to do with this data? Who gets access to this information? I mean, there were all sorts of problems mostly technical, like what is a CSV file, for example. But for the engineers at Constant Contact, this made perfect sense. It was very linear, right? It was, well, of course, we got to know who you want to send your email to, so we got to upload your database. But it was failing to understand consumer behavior, human behavior, which is people need to bend into the software. They need to get some sort of wow out of the software. And so what they wanted to do was, was reduce the time to wow and eliminate the speed bump. So they changed it from who, what, when, to what, who, when. Meaning now when you sign up for Constant Contact, first thing they do is say, great, David, let's build your first email campaign. 
So you're a flower store owner. Here are all these stock imagery, stock photography of flower stores. Pick one, right? Well, how big a headline do you want? What you want to put roses on the front page? What? And all of a sudden, your email is coming to life in front of you and you're having this wow experience. Like, oh my gosh, I've never had my small business look so good and professional. And then they would say, okay, now that you've built this amazing email, it's time to send it to some people. We're going to have to get you to upload your database and bear with us through this feed bump. Here's the 800 number to get stuck. But by that time, the emotional attachment to the software has been forged and they got them over the hump, right? And so they lowered their churn and, and it's been a successful business ever since. But it's a very subtle change from who, what, when to what, who, when. But I think it's incredibly important to the success of that brand. Folks at Netflix and these powerhouse subscription companies, I mean, they have entire teams boardrooms and boardrooms full of people that do nothing but think about onboarding sequences and whether we should send this email at day one or whether we should send this email at day three and whether this video should go. I mean, it's a scientific laboratory that they're working through and they're measuring the relative adoption and then churn rate of each cohort based on the onboarding experience they offer. So it gets really scientific, but I think in the early days, you want to make it as analog as you possibly can, meaning pick up the phone, call the customer, say, thank you for signing up. Let me teach you how to use this thing. So initially we had the one-on-one onboardings and I've done a lot of onboarding calls and then we hired the customer success guy who's been doing them. We tested out a group onboarding, multiple people come in and do this like a few times a week, have multiple people in there, which was really appreciated because people kind of learned from each other, like, hey, this person does like this and that, but it's not personalized enough. So we kind of switched back to doing the onboarding call, one-on-one onboarding calls, but we still do this, we call them town halls. You know, we kind of explain new features and give some tips and tricks. My business partner is a very well-known coach, so he always shares and people really dig this. And this has been really good for us, actually. I guess education is also a big piece of the onboarding, show people like what other cool stuff can you do with the software. So I think this will also play massively into the churn or reduce churn. Yeah. And again, I think as Gail Goodman the CEO of Constant Contact at the time of the change from who, what. She talks about reducing your time to wow. And so, again, I think when we talk about education, it can be tempting to say, okay, let's start off our first onboarding experience. I'm going to give you the history of the company. And then we're going to talk about the 30,000 feet, the reasons you want to like, and after the third call, the customer's gone, right? So we really want to be very efficient with their time and show them a quick win early that puts the hook in to basically get them to spend more time. I mean, it's no different than a great author. Like if you read a biography, if you're reading a book, like Obama's biography, as an example, it doesn't start off on, I was a boy in Hawaii and I grew up, right? It starts off, they're in like situation room and they're like tracking Osama bin Laden and he's got his button on the, you know, like it's a very high intense moment that gets you into the story. And then it goes back to, let me tell you about where I was born and my upbringing. And by that time, you're kind of... And here's my birth certificate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By that time, you've sort of, you're hooked into the story, right? I mean, it's the same thing, but I think we should all maybe study creative literature in undergrad as opposed to uh, IT and programming. (laughs) (laughs) For Value Builder, is it the uploading your logo and then having like all this content that they can share with their audience? Is this the wow moment? No, the logo wouldn't be the wow for us. 
there's a few. One of them is getting a business owner to complete their value builder questionnaire. So oftentimes we have the advisor complete their own, and that can be pretty cool. We also show them a product which allows them to put an estimate of value on their business and demonstrate how they would improve their value. That tends to be pretty cool for a lot of our newest customers. So those are those are a couple of the wows that we give customers really early in the, the onboarding experience. On our call before the podcast, you mentioned something really cool, romance in a subscription business. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, it's all run by a bunch of engineers, a bunch of zeros and ones and left brain thinkers. And I think there is an element of romance, spontaneity, seduction in a subscription business that is important. And I think the best subscription company operators instill the romance in their relationship. Because here's the thing, a lot of people listening to this, in particular those in productized service would be very familiar with the transaction business model, right? Where you run a bunch of advertising, you get people into the store and then onto the website, you sell them something, and then that's the transaction. The subscription is different, right? It's basically a long-term relationship and you're signing up hopefully forever, but there is a relationship aspect to it. And the best relationships are ones where there is a degree of spontaneity that you're surprising your spouse or significant other on occasion. And one of my favorite examples of this is BarkBox, the guys who have a subscription-based box, if you will, for what they call dog parents. For those of you who don't know BarkBox, it is a subscription box of which there are many, obviously, curated dog toys and treats. And their kind of cool hook is that they sell to dog parents as opposed to dog owners. The distinction being dog owners own a dog, dog parents are obsessed and completely head over heels in love with their dog. So they sell to dog parents. Anyway, they, at the time that I wrote The Automatic Customer, which is the book I wrote on subscription business models, they had two of their 40 full-time staff dedicated to surprising their subscribers. So what they would do is essentially comb through all their social feeds, all their customer conversations, and try to identify customers who they wanted to surprise. Now, sometimes it was a happy surprise, like there'd be a new puppy that was brought into the family and they would send some note or some gift or a free box to that new puppy that would be to a company, like a legacy existing dog that they work with. Other times, it was actually a dog would pass away. They would cancel their subscription as a result. But the folks at BarkBox would send a condolences box to the parents. Again, why would they do that? Well, because they know that those parents are likely to get another dog and it creates that sort of loyalty. So look, again, if I go back to BarkBox, 40 employees, so 5% of their headcount was doing nothing but thinking about how to surprise our subscribers. If you look at the granddaddy of all subscription businesses, Netflix, in the early days, they had almost like a static library of content, right? They licensed a bunch of content and it was like, wow, there's all these movies out there. There's a long tail effect. There's lots of movies that I hadn't seen before. And that was the value proposition, right? Lots of movies that you've never seen before. But of course, that gets stale eventually, right? And so of course, they're now buying the rights to movies all the time. They're creating their own. They're one of the largest Hollywood producers now of fresh new content because they want to be always instilling fresh excitement into their relationship with their subscribers. So there is a romance to it, I think. Hmm, interesting. At Maxian, we had the problem, which was my previous business, a content delivery network, that customers kind of integrated into their service or into their website, and then they never 
heard from us again. It's not something where you create a habit of using it or something that you get. Only if there's an issue with it, if it doesn't work, then they'll hear about us. So what we did, similar thing, we went through the customer accounts and kind of like found things that where they had like a setup problem or something changed on the infrastructure. So it was like some performance issue and we either proactively fixed it for them or kind of reached out to them and told them. This is like also very highly appreciated. And I think this is kind of how you create advocates, kind of going back to the NPS thing or like this thing, like you do some support or ideally you retain them or you turn them into advocates, you know, and if somebody that receives like a condolence box for their passed away dog, they're going to tell everybody and their mom how amazing BarkBox is. I think this is like a super cool hack. First of all, B2B subscription models generally are have much lower churn than B2C subscription models. So BarkBox would be a B2C business to consumer subscription. So they're fighting the fact that consumers are more flighty and less likely to keep our subscription in general than other businesses. So in your case, you had other businesses that were your customers. And whenever you can become part of their workflow, that's when you get a very sticky customer for life. I often use the analogy of airline travel. I know you've just done a bunch of traveling. Have you ever wondered why planes don't crash head on into each other in midair? I never asked myself this question. No. Okay. Well, you think about it, there's like thousands of planes in the air at all times. It begs the question, at some point, clearly, they must eventually hit each other in, in a head-on collision. Well, they don't because westbound traffic always sits on even numbers, 32,000 feet, and eastbound traffic does the odd number. So 31, 33, 35. And so all the time, you've got planes passing each other, going from Europe to Asia, et cetera, but they're doing it 1,000 feet above one another. So you never have head-on collisions. Thank goodness. Where this is relevant when it comes to subscription companies is that if your product is not in the face of your customers every day, you run the risk of effectively like ships passing in the night, tree falling in the forest, like your product goes unused because it's not in the flight path of your customers. And so what you want to do with your product, obviously, is to put it into the flight path so that the customer has to take evasive action. Effectively, they're the pilot, and all of a sudden, there's a plane on its flight path, and you have to act. You have to take some sort of behavior. And so a good example of this, I'm a big fan of Grammarly. I use it when I write, but I can kind of go in and out of using it because it's a little bit kludgy. I'm like, I write something in Microsoft Word, and then I kind of have to open Grammarly and paste it in and then paste it back, and sometimes the fonts don't match. It's a bit ugly. And then Grammarly installed its app in Microsoft's online, whatever it is, 365 version of Microsoft. And now it just is a plugin next to Word. So I just crank up Word and then Grammarly sits right there. My subscription to Grammarly is a whole lot stickier now that it's just in my face. So the more you can kind of be a rogue jet and get into the flight path of your customers so that they have to see what you're doing, they have to see you, the better. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I use Grammarly as well because I can't type properly for the life of me. I love customer referrals. And I think a good way of triggering this is to give them, let's say, swag, things that they have in the office that they wear. So you're top of mind and ideally something that trigger conversations. What's this thing you have on? What's this t-shirt? What's this sticker? What's this thing on the desk? Because people love to refer stuff. It's kind of deeply ingrained in us. Like when I can tell you in the Stone Age times, hey, eat these berries, they're yummy. Don't eat these, they make you sick. Are raised in the social status in your eyes. And so it's deeply ingrained in me that I want to do this. So people want to talk about your service if it's good, but they need 
a trigger, ideally, because like, why would you talk about your CDN? For sure, it's very common. I think the other thing to remember when it comes to B2B marketing is that there are people behind the B, right? Like in a business context, it's not just a business, it's a set of people that work at that business who actually buy your product. So it's tempting to think of your customer as this cold entity, but actually it's a bunch of human beings that work there, right? So it's important to think about roles that you are selling to. And again, I'm sure most of your audience does this, but you want to be thinking about what are the roles, who are the key decision makers, who are the users versus the decision makers. In my last company, we did a bunch of work with one of the big courier companies. I can't share which one, but it was one of the big threes. And we talked a lot about the difference between the receptionists and what they valued in a courier company versus what the decision maker valued in a courier company. And in some businesses of a certain size, it was actually the receptionist that was the final decision maker. And guess what? They value the driver. They want a friendly driver, a well-dressed driver, sometimes an attractive driver. That's what they value in their decision about buying a courier service. And so those companies would spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, how do we hire drivers? Are they high on EQ? Are they just good drivers? Or are they able to start a conversation? Ask who won the game last night? And what are you doing for the weekend? And you'll find that a lot of the drivers of courier companies, the better courier companies, are very affable people. They're not just sort of head down doing their job. And there's a reason for that because they hire for that because they know that people in certain industries where there is a reception table, if you will, someone who greets the courier as they arrive, that person is often the decision maker of which courier company to use. And they're making a decision based on the EQ of the driver. Whereas if you were talking to a CFO, that makes a decision in a different style company, it's not going to be on the EQ of the driver. It's going to be on the generally the cost, the logistics of company A versus company B. So that's a silly little example of thinking about ultimately the end user of your product, there may be multiple roles. Who's really your customer? Yeah, it's a human being that's using it. One thing in terms of churn prevention in the B2B setting is something that we always, actually at Maxi, and it was more relevant, we always want to build that three people on our side have contact or like have rapport with three people on the other side. Because if you only have one person there and your champion, if your champion leaves, you're kind of screwed. So this is something that a friend of mine called the three by three retention hack. It's a good point. And if you have this setup, then it's not a bad thing. Actually, it's a really good thing when your point of contact leaves, because in our case, it was always CTOs. They usually work at another company and then, you know, you can kind of like monitor his LinkedIn when he like starts somewhere else. And it's like, hey, man, congrats on a new gig. You know, like you want to bring us in here, you know, and this has been working really well. Actually, with TaskDrive, we have one person. We have the business for four years now and she switched companies three times already and she always brought us to a new company. So it's actually a really good thing for us. Fantastic. Best thing in the world when customers leave. Yeah, again, it comes back to really being thoughtful about who your target customer is. In a B2B model, you've obviously got startup businesses, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large enterprise. And there's just a lot of frictional, like a lot of unavoidable churn in the startup and very small business market. So you can't do a three-by-three retention hack because there is only one employee in the company, right? 
or maybe two if you're lucky. And again, these businesses go out of business. One day they want to be a McDonald's franchisee. The next day they want to get into business coaching. Like They can be very scattered. And so it's very challenging to run a business where the ultimate target customer is a startup business because they are very flighty and there is a lot of unavoidable churn. It's not to say that you can't build a successful business. I mean, MailChimp and Intuit are two great examples of companies that have been incredibly successful targeting small business. What you want to really focus in on, I think, is the LTV to CAC because the benefit of targeting smaller companies is your CAC is usually much lower because it's easier to win them. There aren't 15 layers of decision-making. It doesn't have to go through a CFO. It's like, if the owner wants it, likes it, boom, makes a decision off one call, right? What you're looking for is to optimize your LTV to CAC so that the decision-making cycle and the CAC is relatively low, but at the same time, the LTV is decent because you're targeting more successful small businesses. HubSpot ran into this. HubSpot, the all-in-one marketing software that Brian Halligan started, Unicorn, amazing success. When they started in the early days, they defined their target as small businesses. Well, if you know anything about the small business market, 97% of all small businesses have no employees, right? Or at least less than five employees. And so by the very nature, most of HubSpot's customers were these kind of micro enterprises that were churning all the time. And so in 2013, they made the decision to stop targeting proactively the the micro end of the small business market. And I think they moved to a minimum of five employees. And that one change almost cut their churn by half by just eliminating the very, very small business and then just focusing on those with at least five plus employees and their retention almost doubled as a result. I have a few broadcast services, LT Plus for left-shed agents and support agents and payment recovery agents and task drive for lead research. And often people come in and ask for like, hey, can you do a shared person? We only do dedicated agents. So you have to take minimum one, one agent full-time because everybody who doesn't want a full-time agent, it's very unlikely that they will really grow really big. If somebody comes in and takes like three agents, it's very likely they're going to go to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty agents because the business just scales. But if the business hasn't found its groove yet, it's very likely that they're going to churn. And servicing a customer like this is almost as much work on the setup part, especially on the live chat side, because we have to understand the product, we have to train people, write SOPs and la la la. So it's often a good decision to just kind of move a little more up market and leave this really wide, easy to acquire customers, but headache to serve. That's a general trend, I guess. Like as businesses grow, everybody always goes a little more up market, kind of like try it out with the easy to get ones and then moving up market. That's why I think Intuit is so impressive. They dabbled in the mid market, but I think they've been really disciplined about our target is small companies. And, you know, we're going to make the very best accounting package for very small companies. And They've just been laser focused and I don't think they've been tempted. I mean, I I know they've been tempted, but I don't think they've made the mistake of really investing deeply in using their success in small business to go to medium-sized businesses, which is what so many people do. And I think they have to be commended for having a laser focus on this market. And it's served them well in the sense that Zero is, they're a tough competitor, right? But I think Intuit has maintained a lot of its market share because of the loyalty that its customers showed to it certainly in North America, less so in Asia Pacific. The other lowering churn piece that is worth probably exploring is the idea of 
annual versus monthly billing. So did you guys experiment with annual plans in your last company? I thought about this. And when you brought HubSpot up, I think HubSpot at some point said like, you can only do annual contracts. We still bill you monthly. And you also have to pay like $2,000 for like some onboarding training because people sign up. So you're like, oh, fuck, it's actually a lot of work to get this thing rolling and holding back. Yeah. I think everything with the subscription model, you want to test. And one of the beauties of having a SaaS company is you have data and you can test everything. And this is what I think you want to really test before you make any bold decisions. For Automatic Customer, I interviewed David Scott, who is one of the preeminent thinkers in this whole subscription-based world as a VC. And he was talking about the idea of charging up front and the importance of it from a business model perspective. And I said, well, sure, but it's going to increase your churn, isn't it? Because people are going to see, instead of a $99 a month charge on their credit card, which could easily be ignored, they're going to see annually this big $1,000. Suddenly it pops on the credit card statement and, and they're more likely to churn. He said, actually, John, the opposite is true. The more you charge upfront, the more customers will bet in and really invest in onboarding. So if you do charge, so you notice with HubSpot, you've got an annual contract, but you've also got a fairly significant training bill up front in many cases, right? And that's, I think, partly so you can get trained properly, but it's also partly so that you have a fairly lumpy, significant investment up front. And when you're making, as a small business, thousands of dollars investments, tens of thousands in some cases in a new piece of software, if you're the CEO of that company, you're like, I'm going to get something out of this. We're all going to show up for the onboarding calls. We're all going to do what everybody tells you. Like, We're going to get something out of this. And so what Scott has found is that for the most part, having a fairly beefy upfront training fee or significant annual payment upfront actually makes customers stickier, even though it's an annual payment, which is more likely to show up on their credit card. The other thing to remember is that in a business-to-consumer model, the prevailing model is that it's a monthly bill and you can cancel any time. Whereas for most large enterprise subscription models, like when Salesforce.com sells a license to name the company, Ford Motor Company, that's going to be on a multi-year license where there's a start and an end date in place. And then there's a renewal that needs to take place. And they have renewal managers whose job is to go into the, the CTO forward and try to explain to them why they should renew their Salesforce subscription. So that's a contract which needs to be renewed. It's not an evergreen contract, although they may have a, like a if you miss the opportunity to cancel, then you automatically re-up. But it does have a term to it. Whereas the business to consumer subscription model oftentimes is month to month, cancel anytime, which leads us to the middle ground of the SMB market, which is the bulk of all businesses in the United States or any Western economy is in the SMB space. And that's where there's some ambiguity, right? Because it's sort of a consumer, like if it's a small business, it's run by the owner, it's probably on their consumer credit card. It's kind of a consumer-like experience. And so some would say, well, it should be cancel anytime. Other people would say, no, no, this even though it's a smaller business, it's a business and they need to sign up for a contract and there needs to be a real point. And I think if your target is this SMB space, you're sort of in no man's land. You've got to decide whether you've got a, effectively a consumer product that's dressed up like a business product, or if it's a real business product, in which case it's probably got contracts and they probably need to be renewed 
every two, three, five years, whatever that duration is. A few more businesses, we kind of in this, somewhat in, in this dilemma, but we just have click-through contracts, but we just like have it in the fine print that stuff renews. And like in some cases that prices can change because salaries go up, et cetera. So I think you can remove this friction point, make it frictionless, but still have some, some contract in place. The big guys always go through it and say like, hey, I want this out and that out. But for the standards, they just click through and, and are okay with it. Yeah. Again, it's the beauty of targeting as HubSpot found the kind of slightly larger small business. Enterprise organizations, in my last company before Value Builder, we did quantitative market research on subscription for large enterprise organizations. So our customers were Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, Microsoft, Apple, American Express. Trust me when I tell you, they know when their contracts renew. They are very acutely aware of how long they're signing up for, when the renegotiation window is. And although contractually you could say, yeah, yeah, it auto renewed, you missed the window. Practically, it's really tough. If your customers American Express and they say, we want to renegotiate, we're past the window. It's, it's really hard to look them in the eye and say, oh, we have a contract. So one of the beauties is where you're playing in that not necessarily large enterprise, but also not necessarily consumer-like small business, but in that middle ground where you're much more likely to get away with sort of an auto-renew or evergreen kind of contract that just kind of re-ups. At the end of the day, you know, if somebody wants to leave, they want to leave. That's right. If we don't have like massive investments into this or they got like a crazy lower deal because we kind of like extrapolate it out for five years or something like this, then kind of like marriage, you want to go and just leave. I can't hold you back. Eventually you've got it. Yeah. It's also... NPS style, happy customer tells their friend and unhappy customer tells the world. So you want to make sure you don't get this reputation in the industry. Yeah, for sure. Well, this was really awesome. Thank you very much for all the inputs. Do you have any other books, tools, or resources you want to recommend or anything you want to pitch? If you go to builttosell.com, we've got a bunch of free tools there. So we've got the nine subscription model worksheet, which can enable you to pick a subscription model. If you're an e-commerce business, for example, then you can check it out. We've actually put together a landing page just for your listeners. It's built.com slash solve. So you'll get the non-subscription model worksheet. We've also got the eight drivers of company value video series. And then there's actually a workbook that is a companion to my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's sort of more of a book you can work through and answer questions along with... It's designed to be used with the actual book. Anyways, the workbook is free. It's all at builttosell.com slash solve. Awesome. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to your new book. How can people reach you? I think builttosell.com slash solve is the best way you'll opt in and get on our list for the Built to Sell radio podcast we do once a week with entrepreneurs who've sold their company. That's probably the best place to go. I'm on Twitter at John Warlow, but I'm not a big social guy. I'm kind of an anti-social guy. <laughs> <laughs> you come across very social, so just not online social. I guess. Yeah, John, thank you very much for being on the show. This was really valuable. I took a bunch of notes that I'm going to implement in our businesses as well. So thank you very much for being here. Really appreciate you. Thanks, David. It was great to be with you. Is your sales team spending too much time researching leads and accounts? We take over all the labor-intensive sales development tasks so your team can focus on building relationships and closing more deals. We don't just build lists. We take a strategic research-based approach to find your team qualified leads every day. Ready to start? Schedule your free consultation at taskdrive.com. That's T-A-S-K-D-R 
T-R-I-V-E.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.